0: Thank you for joining the Islam Unraveled Anti-Racism podcast. Our guest today is Victoria City Councillor Shamarke Dubow. Shamarke, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I would like to start by acknowledging that our anti-racism work in the province of British Columbia takes place on the unceded ancestral territory and homes of the First Nations people. I am grateful to be speaking to you today from the territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Shamarke, it's lovely to see you again. The last time we had the pleasure of talking to you was was on March 21st when you spoke at uh, our commemoration of the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Yes. You are a former Somali refugee who immigrated to Canada to become the first black and first Muslim city councillor for the city of Victoria. To understand your journey and how you got here, let's start at the beginning. What was your life like in Somalia growing up?
1: Thank you for having me and it's really a great pleasure to join you on today. And I'm zooming in from the and Speaking people, Sungis and Squaman nation. And I just want to give my gratitude and respect to to the people who protect these lands and, and able to work, build relationships and play. And just continue to build understanding and relationship with the indigenous communities that still exist. And also, I just want to be the best Canadian that I can be, playing a role in reconciliation. And yes, you're right. I'm a, originally from Somalia, and you know, before I became Canadian. And my life uh, as anyone else has a long story and you know everyone has a story and I have my own. And going back to your question, you know, and it was just a normal childhood as any other children, you know, going out when you are a child, playing there and coming back, sometimes getting trouble, you either came late or you come with the dirt clothes, you know, and just playing with the neighborhood children, going to a uh, routine life, waking up, family having dinner, you know, just such as routine, normal childhood until the civil war happened. And then everything has changed and the childhood has been disturbed. And, and this that's was why when we
0: flee, and this was the civil war in the 1990s?
1: In early 90s, uh, yes, early 90s, uh, 91,
0: 92. And, and after, after the, the civil war started, and the I'm sure the situation there became very difficult uh, for your parents, for your family, um, in terms of just the, the, the violence and destitution and desolation that war always brings. Um, was it was it uh, most of your family that left, or just your immediate family?
1: That is a good question. And before I answer that question, I just want to, you know, acknowledge today it's Mother's Day, you know, and it's Sunday, May sixth, two thousand twenty-one, and. To me, that is important because the man I have become and who I am today is because of my mother, because of the sacrifices she made, because of the decisions she made, and the how hard she worked to raise us and protect us. So you know that in any war and or in any conflict area, especially when the civil war or warlords or armed groups or any violence, usually women and children are the victims. And today, and I don't have the numbers correctly, but half of the f- forced displaced or displaced people around the world are children. So that shows the magnitude or the number of people that are displaced. Maybe is I think it's about Seventy million more, and twenty-five million uh, are refugees. So, and my mother made the difficult decision—a mother should never do—to put myself and my older sister on a boat to to Kenya, and for her to do that, you know, just thinking about a mom putting two children. I was eight years old uh, at that time and my mother was older and my sister was older than me Her making the arrangements and that decision is not easy and, and I know that so many mothers around the world make that decision every day either and if they're gonna eat one meal or if they wanna skip one meal or if they wanna be safe. So that's why Always for me, my mother is the key person and, and everything I do I learned from her of generosity, you know, making the difficult decisions, having integrity and showing up for people who are the most marginalized. So she decided that and she put us on a boat and but then the, she joined us later to the Ruby camp in
0: Kenya. And um, you know the the experience that you went through, like I can't even imagine what it must have been like, uh, you know, from either side. Either as a child uh, crossing, you know, over territories with just your sister leaving your mom behind, or the your mom, you know, just putting your kids almost like a uh, Moses's mother, you know, putting her babies on the on the boat and just trusting in God that uh, they'll be all right, um, because it, it is a, it's a very it's an impossible situation. Um, so, so like to do that, it takes a lot of courage. Um, so I, I, would, uh, I would like to also thank your mom for taking the courage that you know, brought, brought you here today and gave you the ability to touch other people's lives in, in a positive way. And uh, many of our audience uh, might or might not be aware, but Kenya is actually home to the world's largest refugee camps. Um, and, and so you were, you were part of that journey, you joined that. And, and how long did you spend in Kenya with your sister?
1: That's a good question. And yes, you're right. And I am grateful and to the Kenyan government and public people of Kenya to welcome and all kinds of refugees from Congo, from Sudan, from Ethiopia, from Somalia, and in the early 19s, there was influx of refugees, and I was part of those boat people. And that's the language is often used even now when we see the people who are trying to get to Europe or trying to get to Yemen and other countries through boats. Uh, I've lived in in a refugee camp called Utanga. It, it doesn't exist now. And the reason is that uh, because it was in Bambasa, uh, the uh, coast uh, city, beautiful city, but the Ruvijikam was isolated, and it was in a, on a farmland where there was a prison. You know, and on the other side of the water, I remember there was a resort. In the night because we didn't have light and things like that we use lamb and you know uh, those kind of things and the moon to keep us uh, the light but certain area of the Ruviji calm has a light but that's street lights the core market but when you go to the zone a zone b zone z zone z uh, usually the lights are lamps and and and, and that's mm. where uh, family use but the strange thing is on the other side of the water and it's a resort. So at night we could see the music and, and, you know, the lights coming from, and sometimes now that I grown up, I wonder people who were going to that resort, if they knew there was a camp on the other side, (laughs) you know? If they
0: even knew what was going on. Uh, Yeah, exactly. They were partying and having fun and, exactly
1: wow yeah and it, it just makes me think and and so you know they closed in the end of 1995 beginning of 1996 and the reason was because uh, there was a big tension between the local and the refugees because the refugee camp was expanding and that uh, caused a bit of a tension with the farmers and, and also there was a big prison, and, and, and I don't know the decisions. I, I have to read more that now that you ask it. Uh, maybe they didn't want the prisons to escape into the Rubiji camp, you know, because it mm-hmm. was getting closer to the uh, penitentiary prison. So, yeah, you know, the Rubiji camp. Is it is a you come? You know, you can't leave until you ask permission. And as children, we run around, play. You know, and and go to traditional uh, Quranic uh, classes. You know, there was a structure of formal education. Uh, a lot. It was building up with the UNICEF. And, you know, just, I, I remember as a child, I learned a lot of the stories of Musa, you know, like there's so much lessons to learn from, from that. And now that you mention, you know, when you talk about struggle and, 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 and facing the fear and things like that. So there is a lot of uh, lessons that anyone could draw from uh, the story of Musa, right? So it was interesting that you mentioned that. And life was normal, you know, just children because the parents are the ones that who make those decisions. But, you know, you line up for food ratio, you you line up for the bathroom, you line up for water, you know, those things that are so privileged right now, you know, living in Victoria sometimes when I think those old days is, yeah, it's it,
0: it feels unreal. It, it can, it absolutely can. And well, one of um, the previous people we spoke to, um, she was saying that it was amazing not having anything to lean on when she was in a refugee camp in Jordan. Like there's no walls to lean on. There was no chair to lean on. It For them, they were just in tents. So we can't always understand the blessings that we have in our day lives until uh, you realize how for for millions of people, uh, for instance, you were just saying the, um, uh, the percentage are, of children, it's it's so 80, 80 million forcibly displaced and refugees in the world today, 40% children. So tens of millions of children going through similar experiences and, and to, to be able to have hope and to come out on the other side and, and to have resilience uh, after going through that, um, it, it's, it's, I, you know, it's incredible. And, and, to, and for yourself, how, how long were you in the Kenyan, uh, the Kenyan camp? Like, how long were you there? Yeah, I, I was,
1: I was there five years, uh, okay. about, uh, about five years, but it's interesting. And uh, you got the number 80 million, correct?
0: And for, yeah, it was, uh, when, it's interesting, uh, shmarke because when we first started uh, refugee work, the number was 70 million. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I just updated myself and looked before this call, and uh, mm-hmm. it's 80 million today.
1: Correct. And, and the reason why I ask you the exact number is that sometimes we speak of numbers. But each number, there is a story behind it. Each number, there's family behind it. Each number, they say, Joe, wedding, death, you know, new baby born, you know, every story. So sometimes we speak people as numbers, but we forget them the stories and and and, and, and their lived experiences and the struggles. I think if we speak more of the stories, then people could relate to that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely agreed, and. One of the initiatives we had specifically to uh, to deal that was the uh, refugee portal podcast, um, which which tried to highlight those stories. And uh, mm-hmm. we have an upcoming event on um, June 20th, the World Refugee Day, which we're very grateful uh, to you uh, to be speaking at uh, to again to show those stories for people to understand and and to relate to and 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 really have a a broader appreciation for the struggle as well as the contribution of refugees. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it, it, thank you for mentioning that. It is very important to always remember. And um, you know, and, and back to your story. So you were maybe about thirteen years old when you left Kenya, and and where where did you guys go now?
1: Yes. Uh, before I answer that, I I just want to go back to something you said about the yeah. World Refugee Day, and yes, um, and thank you for organizing an event to highlight the contribution and the plight of refugees, the 80 million people around the world, just to stop for a moment and to reflect and remember, but also to celebrate those who were former refugees or current refugees, how much they added to the culture and the economy of our communities. So when I was new to Victoria and when I moved to 2002, Alif, and I, October, that's when I moved to City of Victoria. 2013, when the Ruby Wall Day was coming in June, I, I asked around if there is coordinated events that are being organized, but I couldn't find anything. So that's why when I established and brought the community together World Ruby Day Victoria, which is uh, now still in committee that, organizes events around the city uh, every year. I'm not part of it now because it, it runs by itself right now. But the first thing I did in 2013, I remember, is walking into the library and meeting one of the coordinators at the public library and say, what do you think if we organize three events in three branches in, in, in Greater Victoria? To highlight those stories, and it was interesting because I was able to bring uh, someone who came to Canada through the Vietnamese uh, refugees, uh, the plight of refugees. I found someone from the that has family from Holocaust. I found current refugee from the DAP who came as a student. So I I showed the differences uh, of of people coming from all around the world in a different experiences, but forcefully removed f- from their homes, but then are all linked to the story of Ruviji, and, and just to take the negative away and to reclaim the world and, and, and say that uh, our Canada includes refugees. So I just wanted to appreciate you and taking the time to highlight an event on that day but going to back to your uh, question uh, yes i was 13 years old when i live in kenya because we had three options one option was either to go back to somalia through repatriation and unusually what happens around the world when it comes to issue of refugee, the best option the best solution is repatri- uh, repatriation, which means going back to home, mm-hmm. if that is applicable. That means if home is safe, and when you go home, if you can have the trainings, the you know all the support you need once you go back home, because so that you could survive as well, right? Because if you were in refugee camp and getting food, ration,al and and, and, and everything then you were not trained, you were not not part of national programs, you didn't have a self-reliance, livelihood. So like if you were there like three generations and the government didn't include you and educate you, then it's hard when you go back uh, that now to reintegrate, right? So having those programs. So the best option is usually reintegration and re Repatriation and we couldn't go Somalia because at that time it was the conflict was still on or uh, relocated to, as you were saying, one of the biggest camps Kakoma under DAP, which was another option. Those refugee camps who are at the border and my mother again didn't want to do that, and the third option is to either leave undocumented in Kenya or become an urban within the cities, which means you depend on your family's support, those who are in the diaspora to send you money and, repent, and remittance. So we made the other choice to join my brother in Ethiopia. So we took on, on the road to be smuggled through the border of Kenya to, uh, to border Ethiopia, and that's how I end up in Ethiopia, where I began my formal education, almost finished high school, then moved to Egypt 2001 before 9-11 and continued my high school and finished university in Egypt and finished my formal education because I caught up education late and I didn't want to grade one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's grade five and kindergarten. So I caught up my education late, but I'm grateful. And I'm proud that I finished high school and got my undergrad uh, degree.
0: And, and you, uh, you graduated from Egypt, uh, exactly?
1: Correct, but uh, you'd be surprised that Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia. So my degree is a Canadian degree and I didn't know that I would end up in Canada by the way, at that time. But I, I remember the ministry. I, I don't think she's still the ministry of education in Nova Scotia because governments do change and roles are uh, changed. But she came to Cairo, Egypt, and the um, Canadian ambassador. And my graduation night, I remember it was 2008, and when I got my degree, the best network management project at school. With my colleagues, we were six, and we got the best project and information technology. And wow. six of us, yeah, six of us, one uh, passed away, May God bless his soul, by accident car. Uh, one of my friends now is in Seattle doing IT work and who is from Djibouti are, and the rest are Egyptian and they are back home in their country in Egypt doing great work with IT. But I couldn't get a job because I wasn't eligible. And when you're Rubiji, you're not allowed to work in Egypt because they put reservation one of the uh, articles in the refugee Convention because governments could either allow uh, to work or not. So that's why uh, some countries don't allow uh, privileges to work or be part of the national program such as education and health. So my education, I had to pay for it.
0: You paid for it yourself. So you, you, your through education- Through my family. Through your family and, and you reached the top of the educational uh, you know, hierarchy in your field. Uh, you know, being recognized uh, by by the Canadian ambassador as well as, uh, you know, the the Minister of Education for Nova Scotia, and that, that's an amazing coincidence that yeah, the school yeah, you, yeah. you chose and and so that was what year was that that you graduated? Uh, two thousand eight, two thousand eight, right? So that that also coincides with the start of the global financial crisis and all the challenges that came from that, and so it must have been it must have been now at the top of your head you struggled for so long your family has struggled and and contributed so much to your education how can you how can you make something of this how can you give back so mm-hmm. what did what what did you decide in those moments
1: <laughs> uh, by the way shout out to my brother who sold his car to pay pa- part of my school tuition mm-hmm. uh, that is a, a amazing sacrifice you know and th- that's a good question you know you finished uh, information technology, you know, business technology, you have a Canadian degree, you are excited, you know, you, you feel like, and I, I did internship with net and, you know, the cable network, uh, DSL, uh, how internet gets into your house uh, at that time, and, yeah, exciting, and I remember looking jobs, and But then I hit the barrier, which was, I was a refugee in Egypt. So that means I didn't have a right as the national, as a national one. I also wasn't a foreigner, such as, you know, when you're a foreigner, you have your embassy, so that uh, your embassy will help you with the paperwork and whatever requirements that might arise through the employment opportunity, and sometimes uh, locals are given first, and, and the company has to approve. If local cannot get the, if local cannot do the job, then the foreigner would do. So it was a, it was a sad moment because, and and this is the challenge Rubiji's face, and this might this is. My story is not unique, by the way, you know, all around the world, as even today, May 9th to 2021, that we're speaking about my story, which has happened a decade ago, still the same around the many countries around the world, you know, some even didn't sign the Rubiji Convention Law, let alone those who've signed. So I was treated as a foreigner when I'm Ruviji, And the reason why I say that, that is, foreigners and Rubijis are not the same. Rubijis are hosted, you know, they get protection of the state, you know, and they have rights under international law and the G convention, and sometimes if there is domestic law within that country. And so because I, I couldn't get a job. I started to give back. And while I was in the university, actually, I started a nonprofit organization, uh, which was helping needy, impoverished neighborhoods uh, in, in, in Cairo, although I was refugee, I was privileged because yeah. I could afford my education but I was giving back to the communities that welcomed me, you know, that uh, the country that uh, hosted me. So I was giving back those who were uh, less privileged and trying to mobilize students in my university who are really privileged and so that they can give back. And one of the things we did is um, and train and women who, are doing uh, you know belts bags from leather to increase their business to go to exhibitions and markets so that the sale could increase and also open daycare while they are working, their children could get uh, some lesson and trainings and also helping them pharmacy in their neighborhood you know and build those relationships with the community leaders to access that right so because of my passion, then I realized, okay, what could I do? Then I started working with the Center of Migration and Refugee Studies at the American University in Cairo, and helping refugees and becoming an interpreter. I was trained as community interpreter. Then I was trained as community psychosocial worker, you know, helping back and the refugees. Then I got a job uh, at the nonprofit organization, which was human rights uh, organization, and to become focal point for separated children and unaccompanied refugee and child soldiers that come to, um, in Egypt from Eritrea, Sudan and Congo to help them the psychosocial support and work with the legal team and partners such as the UNHCR, CARITAS, CARE, and the Egyptian government for the, you know, have a best interest and for the children and, and, and then help them to sometimes get resettled, but sometimes make sure that uh, their legal uh, rights is protected, but also give them access to education, to their health, and prepare programs uh, because at the end of the day, children and children and i i was one so it was a privileged job then i got another job within the organization to become community outreach to do outreach and assessment to support and mobilize um, schools because one interesting thing in in cairo is there's a lot of sudanese schools run by rubijis because a lot of African refugees cannot go to the formal education, they can access, they can get it free, and, but there are exceptions. Some Syrians are allowed; it's case by case, but a lot of refugees are not allowed. So what they did is form their own community schools, so that children could access schools and implement Sudanese curriculum, and so that so my job was to reach out to those schools build their capacity and and create awareness their rights and work with the unhcr on programs and things like that so i was doing that job then the arab spring happened the revolution happened you know and to that was another life experience for me to see everything unfold and in the middle of that work when I left because uh, you know I was doing a human rights job and it got a little bit risky so I was lucky to come to Canada in 2012.
0: And and the Arab Spring my god what a what a moment of hope and then you know everything that happened after that uh, and to be in Egypt which really was uh, you know in in many you know it started in, in Tunisia but like the the, this, the kind of fire behind it was, you know, the protests in Tahrir Square. And, and did you see any of that? Did you partake in any of that?
1: Yes. But one, I had no option because as a community leader, as someone who was working with uh, the Ethiopian, Eritrean, Sudanese, Iraqis, because in 2006, there was a lot of Iraqi privileges that came to to, to Egypt, so mobilizing communities. Now I was receiving so many calls from community leaders, seeking information. And one thing I remember is when conflict happened, rumors begin, fear, rumors. Those are two dangerous uh, recipes in terms of fake news and and all that, right? Because people create things and people get scared. So me to receive the phone call, I'm scared myself, but I need to collect myself and stay calm, give them the facts. Because communities got scared when they see the foreign, aid workers and the UN staff and other agencies evacuated because they were nationals of other countries, such as American, Canadian, German, Swedish, Indonesian. So when they saw the the other nationals to be evacuated, but the refugees, where would they go? Who do they have, right? So you can understand how families get afraid, right? Even Egyptian families were afraid at that time, let alone the Ruby G's. So I had to go to the streets. You know, I had to, and not only me, we were a team, to check on vulnerable families, to work with the UNHCR when there is a distribution of money to make sure those will reach out to those families who are isolated, to the el- uh, old elders, you know, and give them the correct information so that they have some type of hope because you cannot take the hope away from them because once you do that then people have no reason to survive and to go on so it was the busiest time in my life you know because there was a lot of misinformation and, and fear and things were changing by the hour, by the day. And is it, it, I can talk about it all day, just those 11, the first 11 days were like the most scariest. I have seen civil war, but you know, I got adjusted a little bit stability then to see this, I, you know, seeing a policeman Take their uniforms off because they feel more safer to dress civilian. That is in Cairo. If anyone lived in Cairo, they would know what I'm talking about. You know. So that was an eye opening for me. And and, and yeah, so I was busy helping with uh, with 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 families.
0: Yeah, like. And I had afro. (laughs) <laughs> you had an afro back then. I, I will
1: send you a picture. Me <laughs> near uh, me and my friend just came in back from uh, the distribution of money and, and registration of refugee families and uh, near a tank because the military was wow. safeguarding and all the key points, including tahrir and
0: uh,
1: key such as banks
0: and government facilities. Wow! Wow! And, you know, it it must have been, it must have been something to take all your experiences and your skills and, and to see what was so stable before what people took for so granted in, in a way, just fall apart, in 10 days and, you know, the fear that you're experiencing and unique to the Arab Spring was, this was one of the first times where social media played a huge role in really cultivating a population and spreading disinformation. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, carried on it's expanded but did you did you see that as the start of really the the power of social media in in, in these kind of revolutions and uh,
1: in communities yeah twitter played a big role uh, in terms of organizing and things like that but it was interesting what you said people having stability sense of security but feeling insecure Insecurity and and seeing violence and being scared really shifts the opinions and people how they feel. And I tell you why. I say I'll share a story with you. While I was doing the psychosocial work, I I was also an actor. I was part of a theater player. I was doing that until I left to Canada, and the theater was. And what we did is that we brought five Egyptian actors and five Ruviji leaders from Ethiopia, Iraq, Kenya, and and Eritrea, Somalia, Sudanese, and to come with script of a play for a five minutes play, community play, that will touch why do Ruvijis come to Egypt and when they're in Egypt what do they face and what do they add to their life and what did they run away but also how do the everyday ordinary Egyptian the normal you know the working class the poor working class how do they relate with the the refugees and trying to survive, raise family and leave and to be safe. So the play is that, and I will send you a link. CNN Inside Africa made a coverage of that play. It was one of the things I'm proud of and the most fun and, and a lot of emotions because when you go on the stage, And you perform with songs and the play some audience cry some audience get angry some audience uh, laugh so it brings all these emotions and what we used to do is and this was before revolution and i'll tell you why i'm telling you this story of what you just reminded me so we go to these impoverished neighborhoods even Cairo university german university and, and we go Alexandria, other cities, to to actually perform, and just to increase relationship and empathy and build bridges, right? So there is a part of the play where I come in, and and I say hurry because I was a I was a university professor who was teaching in my country. I spoke against government because I. I spoke inequality, equality, injustice, and I stood up for the people, I stood up for the public in my home country. Then uh, then the government and other actors come after me and my life gets in, in danger, then I leave. And, and, and that, that's how the play is. So part of the play, I shout and give a speech to some of the audience in my country and say, hurry Korea, Freedom—that's Arabic word. Freedom, freedom. A lot of people, while we were doing that play, didn't connect that much. But after the revolution, they really like clicked, hundred percent, because now they saw insecurity. Now they saw what uh, the play was trying to say, uh, like uh, someone standing up for justice, feeling insecure. It was quite interesting to see the change of the audience. And to me, that was just mind blowing, to see how people, just how life experience could change you. and, And that's why stories are important, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Shamark, absolutely, and I'll I'll make sure to include a link to that play. Please send it to me; I'll include it with uh, the podcast everywhere we send it. You know, the the truth that art can tell, uh, it's so overlooked a lot of times. But in essence, it it what can really turn a heart. It, it's these stories told in a way that people can relate to. They can relate to, and you know, just to just to take the conversation from. From where we're, at. I'm sure we could talk about Egypt for for hours and hours. I, a side fact, my family is from Egypt. Uh, my my dad was born there, and you know, I I visited a couple times before the revolution, and would love to go back um, and and just to to see maybe even see your play live in person if it's still running, <laughs> and and you know, I would this would be something that I, I would love to do. Um, but for you, Shamarki, after after the revolution, things became unsafe for you in Egypt. And maybe just tell us what that was like and then how you came to Canada. I, I
1: was lucky enough because uh, someone in Winnipeg uh, thought of me and I reached out and they sponsored me. And, and that's how I came. For instance, if I could have been arrested in, in Egypt, maybe my life would have been different. You know, I don't know what would has happened would have ha- happened to me, right? So I am grateful that I made home to Canada. And now that I'm Canadian citizen, that means I can leave and come back to Canada anytime. When you refugee, when you leave the country, you, you lose your refugee status. If I would have left Egypt to another country, such as Sudan, then I would have lo- lost the protection I had in Egypt under the Egyptian government and the UNHCR. Uh, so and I didn't have more rights. I didn't have the right as a national, and I didn't have the right as a foreigner, which you have your own embassy that looks after your interest. But now anywhere in the world I go, I have the Canadian consulate, you know, that would look after the interest of any other Canadian. So I was lucky I ended up in Winnipeg and then did a road trip because I was stressed because I was doing a difficult job, you know, and a hard job. Uh, so I didn't want it to move right away something. I wanted to take a breath, and and open my eyes and really appreciate this landscape of Cold Canada and and sink in bit by bit. So I thought when a friend of mine tells me I'm in Toronto or I'm in Saskatoon, hey I was like, okay, I'm going to Winnipeg, I'll see you. I didn't know how massive this country was and how expensive it is to travel (laughs) around. So little did I know, you know, in terms of of how big uh, this beautiful, blessed country is. So that's why I decided I'm gonna discover the whole western of Canada. And took six months road trip. While I was doing my road trip, and seeing friends—Regina, Saskatoon, you know, Prince Albert, uh, you know, Calgary, Edmonton—you uh, know, all the way to Vancouver—and seeing some families and relatives from Seattle for the first time, you know, because I couldn't cross; uh, they can cross easily at that time. So I was applying jobs. Then I I got a job in Victoria and. I'm glad, and I because they could recognize the work I have done overseas and the skills that I could bring. So I got a as a youth worker and at the Victoria Immigrant Refugee Centre Society. They had a new program called VIPP, Vulnerable Immigration Population, something like that. I, and and then was a case manager where wrap around to work with the newcomers in Greater Victoria and school district, but also with parents and help the youth at risk develop and, and mentor them, but also surround them programs as a wrap around. And that's where I moved to Victoria, October. I, I came Sunday, then Monday I uh, went to my job.
0: Wow, within one day, that, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's amazing that such things, uh, again, Canada is a blessed place where things like that can happen. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, for a lot of us to remember, we don't think about it. Like you were talking about the passport. You know, Growing up as a Canadian, you don't, you just think, where do I wanna travel, right? With the assumption that you can go anywhere. Never thinking about how for millions and millions, billions of people, that question, it, it's they, they maybe can never even leave their own country, let alone go and visit. For instance, now, you can go back to Egypt, be welcome with open arms. You can go back to Kenya. You can go back anywhere, and the experience would be totally different, and just because of a passport, or just because of being able to get a job, uh, and, and move to a new city, move to a new city. Even it's it's very, uh, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, and you know I think a lot of us who were born here, and even some people who did immigrate, to to really appreciate that and ensure that we can share that. With others who come here, right? That welcoming, that that ability to understand that there is a lot of um, there's a lot of privileges that we have, and how can we recognize that and give back? So you take it to the next level, Shamarke. Okay? So despite all the challenges that you faced, you can see throughout your life's journey, in each instance, giving back, helping others, supporting people. The even the jobs you're doing, the work you're in, like it's it's pretty amazing. And, and then, so how long were you in that role? How, how long were you working there?
1: I was working until, I believe, 2016, because, uh, you know, 2015, we, uh, the public of, of Canada, the people of Canada, we've uh, mobilized uh, each other and pushed the federal government to make the commitment to uh, bring more than forty thousand Syrian refugees, so that is the it was a national um, program which I'm proud of as who's a Canadian. It's a small number, but it was significant because those numbers today they are business owners, they're Canadian citizens, children are born uh some of them are graduating high schools now some of them are becoming doctors Uh, so i left that position because there was another position at the intercultural association of greater victoria where my the role will be making connection the long-term residents in in greater victoria and newly arrived refugees to match them and then helping them support each other. Because when you're new to country, you have to learn about how the transit works, how the banking system works, uh, you know, the going to picnic and getting your first bike. So I just was, I, I, I couldn't believe that I was paid uh, literally to bring families together and, and then and train volunteers of course about culture sensitivity and other things before they get on board and do all that but uh, the long term was just uh, connect these two families and even now I'm not in that job but I run into either the volunteer or the other family they're still friends you know like they celebrate their birthdays yeah so that was the base bro they it used to be co host program long time ago, and through the IRCC, the Immigration, Refugee, Canada Citizenship, it is who funded the program. But I was the facilitator at the Intercultural of Greater Victoria, and yeah, just working with the newly arrived refugees at hotels, and um, yeah, just such a pride because. Their stories reminded me exactly my stories and seeing eight years old and now, you know, they're grown up and, and <laughs> just I know every family by name and like I think three of them now own businesses in Victoria. One has supermarket, one has a track food, you know, and it's just, it's just amazing. And I got that job while i was working that job in 2017 i became citizen then i was speak actually i was speaking a month before i, ke- I became citizen at the city hall about world refugee day uh-huh. uh, yeah and, and and highlighting the importance of that then the mayor asked me if i ever consider running for an office then it just she implemented that seed I took it from that seat. And today I'm in local government and giving back to the community who uplifted me and embraced me as one of them.
0: So that was the the impetus. The mayor actually said, I see in you something, run for local office.
1: Yeah, she said, you sounded like politician, but you were authentic. You spoke integrity. I've seen you around. You spoke eloquently, and, and it will be nice to have such a voice in, in governments because you so authentic. And it made me curious: uh, why would the this amazing human being? What made her say that? Then I invited her to tea, and asked her what made you say that, and just to listen what she saw in me, and took it from there and entertained and inquired the area
0: and, and the rest is this, history. And this was to be a city councilor. So you ran for city council of Victoria. Uh,
1: yes, and at her comment I wasn't sure and I don't remember it was particularly to run for council but she thought politics will benefit a person like me at that time.
0: Mm. And I'm mm.
1: glad that uh, I, I sat with her tea and asked her role and What does council does? Uh, To be honest, I didn't know much about uh, council, but I knew more about government and politics always impacted me since I was eight. And also, and I was part of a national advocacy when it comes to migration and settlement because I was part of, I was on the board for the Canadian Council for refugees. And I used to organize uh, about tenants and, and, and renter's rights in
0: my community. So for your constituency, they, they, you must have said something that they decided this is the person to represent. us. So what, what, is, what is your kind of vision and mission that in being a, a, in government, what do you hope to achieve for people? Yeah, you you know,
1: government, uh, local government is the most important thing. You know, like, uh, is if people, if your garbage is not picked up, it's visible. You know, if your traffic lights is not working, it's visible. If your tap water is not working, it's visible. Uh, So, local government is the closest government to the people, and. That is really what I love, and that is one thing I really, really love every day my job that I could represent people that I see and issues that I care and COVID-19 really showed us the inequities that exist in our community and that has existed in our community and when COVID-19 hit our communities and as we continue to really deal with the COVID and and the challenges and the impact it has on our community people look up to their governments you know to come up with a response that really protects the safety of all and but also thinks how to create inclusive recovery now that we are talking about the recovery and how we would Come back strong, but we need to think how we can come back strong and and, and, better. and just recovery and better in terms like that. Because business as usual never worked for 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 anyone. So we need economic solutions and and response that really talks about. And the ordinary people, and working class people, and poor working class people, and and protects you know renters, but also uh, homeowners who haven't wealthy uh, from evictions, you know, and ensure that every resident could have a trust in their local government and be able to feel they have sense of belonging in, in the government.
0: Now, uh, Shamar one thing um, that stops people from being able to fully participate in both the political process as well as in society at large is, is really this elephant in the room of, of racism. Um, Canada is not immune to that. Uh, we've seen time and time again. Now, as a black man, as a black Muslim man, not just in public office, but also just as a man. Um, what are your thoughts on dealing with racism, uh, this, this kind of virus of hate?
1: Yes, you're right. I am the first uh, black city council elected since uh, 152 years. And, and yes, you're right, the first Muslim. And yes, you're right, the first uh, someone who was born in the continent of Africa and who immigrated from there to, to Canada. Yes, you're right, there is an under-representation in politics and way too many professional uh, fields, and that will really impact how we see ourselves and in the spaces we exist and move, you know, and that creates uncertainty and fear, which sadly have worked toward eroding hope in some ways have affected the way, uh, the way our communities are led and the way our communities are being desi- uh, designed so that's why we need and we must have broader social and systematic change and, and that's why I, I believe uh, strongly more than ever today that we need to look who is on the table when we make policies, procedures, and, 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 and make decisions behalf of the communities that we represent. And uh, yes, I do face racism, but that is not alone to me uh, that uh, indigenous people, people of color, women, and other marginalized groups face as well. But I'm committed to really uh, fight for change. And, and you know that uh, studies have shown, and, and this is something proven uh, that uh, many cities across the world, in, in Canada, even within our own, s- s- uh, my own city, in city of Victoria that the chronic disparity between the have and have, have not are concentrated in in low-income families and sometimes low-income neighborhoods that also experience a host of other social inequities. And, and that's why what we need to address to really make sure that uh, we have uh, equity framework and equity lenses and that's why and I was broken record for that on council and now the city of Victoria is going to have equity EDI office, inclusion and diversity and equity office. And the and that and having a framework is a way to introduce set of questions to be asked you know who will benefit the decisions we make who's in the table who's is, is excluded from those benefits and why who might be harmed uh, how might some population groups be unfairly burdened today or in the future how might this privilege be further entrenched have we of important decision made directly input of those who will be most affected by the decision. So uh, when we ask all that and try to transform systems, then we are able to really talk about uh, challenging and uh, racism and discrimination because we have to really ask the hard questions where uh, we work on the system. And that is advancing equity is more important now than ever, and having those principles.
0: Agreed. And COVID both highlighted it, but also allowed us to have time to think about these solutions and try and implement them. And one thing you said to tie it back to your experience was for a lot of people living in Canada, they're those people who are in those resorts. And many people in Canada are the people in the camps who don't have who don't have electricity, who don't have water, who don't have it, it, the metaphor, right, to tie it together. And if we care about our country and our fellow citizens, we have to make sure that we are at least all benefiting from the Canadian um, experiment and not to just have the have and the have-nots from a systemic perspective. So, again, thank you for taking the time to share your story. I, I believe we can have many more uh, discussions on all these matters, um, I'd leave the final word to you, Shamarke, about your future vision, your plans, and and what you would like to say to our audience.
1: T- thank you. And, and I love, I, I just like to, what I was hearing, what you just said is we will pull through by pulling together like we've done in the past. Uh, that means that we need to care for each other. And this virus has shown us that we depend on each other. You know until all of us are safe then no one is safe and one more thing that i want to say is that uh, this moment really calls on all of us to go all in for all of us and that's what i'm committed to to make sure that the decisions and the policies that i make it works for uh, everyday people the working class people and the working poor people and we are better off when we are all healthy and safe, especially
0: the most vulnerable among us. Agreed. With love, my brother, thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day and um, you know, uh, peace and blessings, uh, as we say in Arabic, assalamu Alaikum. Uh, so thank you again for taking your time, Shamarke. It was a real pleasure.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure uh, having me. Talk to you soon.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.